Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Grand Rounds. It is good to be back uh, with you live, at least here in the studio. We have a very, very important Grand Rounds today. And uh, but before before I ask Dr. Spiegelman to introduce uh, Rebecca Sofer to give the Grand Rounds, I wanted to say a couple of things. First one is uh, to our Muslim colleagues and friends uh, in the holy month of Ramadan. uh, May your heart be filled with peace, harmony and joy. Uh, Ramadan Mubarak. Now, today's Grand Rounds is one about uh, pediatric trauma, and uh, it's one that we will have yearly uh, devoted to this topic, which is so relevant today, uh, particularly today with the atrocities uh, that are going on in Ukraine. Uh, I think you see the images of children uh, moving uh, from, from their home country to uh, other countries as refugees. You know, the hundreds of kids that have been, that have been killed as a result of this horrific war. Uh, kids that are getting cancer therapy, that are undergoing therapies in, in hospitals that can no longer have supplies. Uh, it just, it, you know, it, it's just tremendous of, you know, what we're seeing and the pain and the horror. But at the same time, the resilience. Uh, so I'm sure Rebecca is going to touch upon this and, you know, how do, we, how do we deal with this? How do we help our kids when, who are seeing this on, on the Internet, on TV, uh, you know, deal with it, understand process? But it's also in memory of the beautiful children who, who lost their lives in the horrific events that took place in Sandy Hook uh, nine and a half years ago. Just to quote Charlotte Helen Bacon, age six, uh, smart, funny, curious, messy, and adventurous. Uh, her family wrote describing six-year-old Charlotte. Uh, we like to use the word bold. Daniel, uh, age seven, seven-year-old Daniel was unusually compassionate, always concerned that the people around him were happy and safe. He used to sit next to a special needs girl in class to make sure she was okay. When she would lose her glasses, Daniel would find them. Olivia Rose. Olivia loved swimming and soccer and dancing in a pink tutu, singing in art projects and math. At dinner, she led her family in saying grace. And she was proud of her role as a big sister and her participation in, in an educational program at her parish church. Josephine, age seven, seven-year-old Josephine, known as Joey, was the girliest of her sisters, and she adored her older siblings. The family wrote in a recent article in the Newtown Bee, Anna Grace. Marcus Green, age six, buddy musician, Anna Grace, had a gift for melody, pitch, and rhythm that stood out even in a musical family, as her father put it. She never walked anywhere. Uh, Her mode of transportation was dance. She danced from room to room and place to place. Um, And today we also, again, we extend a hand of love and comfort to all the children of Ukraine and their parents and their moms and dads. May they find hope for a better future in this time of unspeakable injustice and pain and may peace find its way to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. So uh, the world experiences a lot of pain, a lot of pain, a lot of trauma. I think we, we have seen it over the last two years of the pandemic. Uh, we've all felt it uh, in, in very different ways. And certainly children have been affected by this, young, young adolescents and young adults as well. We've seen it in our behavioral health units here at Connecticut Children. So today's Grand Rounds is really devoted to trying to understand this, uh, and I, I know uh, Rebecca's going to give us a, a tremendous uh, lecture today that hopefully everyone will be able to listen to now and in a recorded fashion. 
And, uh, and I thank Ken Spiegelman for, for finding her and, and getting her to uh, present today, and, uh, and Rebecca for her flexibility of changing the original date to this one uh, in, in April. Uh, and, and so I please, uh, I'm going to ask Ken to introduce Rebecca, and um, then I have some announcements at the end of the, of the, of the presentation to, about upcoming Grand Round. So, uh, Ken, go ahead. Okay, thank you, Juan, and thank you for your beautiful words, too. You know, as we transition from our Sandy uh, Hook Memorial Grand Rounds to our newer, all-encompassing title of Trauma and Violence in Children, I just wanted to share a a few brief thoughts. Over the last couple of years, I've worked along with a number of under other individuals uh, who work with aspects of violence and trauma in children. And what I've learned over the last couple of years is to ask one meaningful question as I begin each of my while, each of my well child visits. And the question is, have there been any major events that have impacted you or members of your family during the past year? I was never trained to ask this question. The answers I receive are frequent and varied and so revealing and important from the loss of a loved one, a cancer victim, a serious illness, the loss of a pet, a job or a house and many more. And, I'm, and I find myself often pivoting with a family to this topic as to how it's affected the overall health of the child and family. Over the past several years, loss has taken on such an overwhelming part of our lives magnified by the pandemic and what we see as Juan talked about with the children and adults of Ukraine too. Uh, loss is something that no one in this audience will ever escape. But what's important is that we all develop tools and resources to help us through us. Uh, and that's why I would like to introduce and so grateful for Rebecca Sohar, who's the co-founder and CEO of Modern Loss. I'm gonna read from her website with Modern Loss Rebecca hopes to bring their refreshing openness to a broader audience and community who could use their own place setting at the table of loss. Rebecca has been a lifelong organizer of communities, both public and private. She uh, received her master's in journalism from Co Columbia, has been a speaker in multiple areas from, and written for the New York Times, been on NBC, has worked with Stephen Colbert as well. I could keep on going on and on, but I'd like to use this time for you, Rebecca, to tell us what's so important about loss. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Spiegelman. Thank you so much to everybody at Connecticut Children's. I'm, I'm really, really honored to be here today. Um, I, I wish that we never had any reasons to talk about this stuff. I wish that the world were full of just lollipops and fluffy clouds and rainbows, but we all know very well that, you know, life has, it has been the realest that it possibly can be over the last couple of years. And so I'm really um, just, I'm very grateful to have the chance to connect with everybody this morning. Um, <clears throat> so thank you and good morning to everybody. Um, I would like to introduce myself first and foremost, like why is it that I am sitting here in my bedroom slash, you know, office slash where my kid was just sick for <laughs> a week um, and speaking with all of you this morning. So I wanted to introduce myself and what I do. So I run something that is called Modern Loss. Um, what is Modern Loss? It is inherently, uh, it's a global community that is focused on eradicating the stigma surrounding honest talk, uh, candid conversation around grief and loss, 
and helping people to understand what the feeling is like and how it doesn't just end after day 365. And in fact, day, how day 366 might even be harder than day 362 was. Um, I started it, not, you know, a lot of people on this, 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 um, in this Grand Rounds talk today are caregivers, they're professional caregivers, you work in the medical field, um, you probably, some of you grew up wanting to, you know, dedicate your lives to caring for others, to being in service. Um, I think I grew up wanting to be in service in a different way. Uh, I grew up wanting to be in service in terms of what I could do with my words, um, how I could write, how those words could affect people. And I, I really thought I was going to do it through the journalistic route. Um, as Dr. Spiegelman said, I went to Columbia Journalism School. I worked at CNN when I was in college at Emory. Um, and then I went right from journalism school to working for Stephen Colbert. Um, I was an original producer at the Colbert Report. So not really like a path that feels like somebody is taking to work in like the grief and loss community, right? Um, but life intervened as we know that it always does, right? Um, the universe had other plans in store for me. I was a producer at the Colbert Report. I was you know, on the original staff when the show started airing and my mother was killed in a car accident. Um, I was 30 years old. I was working full time. I was a single woman living in New York City, which meant that, you know, I was ordering takeout every night or going out. And, you know, I really felt like my life was very much starting in build mode. Um, and instead, uh, I was faced with having to toe the line between build mode, you know, build my career, maybe find a you know, a partner and a mortgage and a dog and all those things, but also navigate extremely deep and profound loss without my person. I mean, my mom was my person. She was she was my very best friend. Um, I lost her in a traumatic way. It was a car accident in the New Jersey Turnpike, which I certainly would not wish on anyone. Um, rather insulting place to lose one's life. Uh, my dad was in the car with her. And so I immediately became familiar from one minute to the next with how overwhelming and how isolating and how complicated um, and solitary the grief experience can be, especially in our culture here in Western culture, how we really don't love talking about it, how we really love to prefer to deal in platitudes and pretend like there's a fix and pretend like if we don't talk about it, then maybe we can control whether it affects our lives or the people that we love. We don't like being reminded how, you know, we're not assured any certain number of days in our lives, uh, but rather, you know, it's kind of up to the universe in some ways. And so we don't like any of that. And so sometimes our reaction is to just simply disengage from the conversation about grief and loss. But I think as everybody knows full well on this talk today, you don't really have control over whether it affects your life. It comes to you and it's a constant companion through the rest of your life that ebbs and shifts and flows and takes on different forms. Um, sometimes you feel like it's controlling you and sometimes you feel like you have more control you know, over it and you can live alongside it.
but I feel like in general, we didn't do a good job of talking about this stuff. I felt very lonely. I was working full time and then I was going home and trying to figure out like where I could put talking about my grief, um, you know, and I was basically told by, you know, in no uncertain terms by society that it was okay to put it in my therapist's office and to like a couple close friends who felt comfortable talking about it. Uh, and maybe if I, you know, like went to synagogue to light a yurtzeit candle, it was acceptable there. But I re really wanted to feel like I could do storytelling because unlike you, many of you, I did not grow up thinking that I would be a professional you know, caregiver. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a producer. My, you know, my strength is in storytelling and in community building and in talking about things that actually may not be really comfortable to talk about. But if we don't talk about them, then it blows up. It gets really bad. And the person who's struggling with it only struggles even more because they don't feel seen and acknowledged in what they're going through. Um, and I learned that really well, even working for Stephen Colbert, which is, you know, someone who has excelled in covering very difficult topics on his shows, especially at the Colbert Report, which are, you know, political, they're societal, they're financial, they're economical, they're overwhelming and sometimes dry to absorb. But when you do it in the right way, when you do it with warmth and engagement and you make it clear that, you know, as long as you're not hurting yourself or anybody else, you know, fly your flag you know, then you create a conversation that is engaging and pulls people in as opposed to, you know, bashing someone over the head with it and getting a message through and then they never come back again to you because they're really scared or uncomfortable. Um, and so that is why I started Modern Loss. I co-founded it with my friend, Gabby Berkner, who also had gone through terrible losses. Um, my mom and dad ended up dying four years apart from each other. So I was 34 and my dad died from a heart attack. This was not my life plan. And so Modern Loss came out of this feeling of like, there is a white space in the conversation and the community, the grief community that needs to be filled, that isn't clinical, that isn't religious, that is, you know, not full of kittens and platitudes and assurances, but that is the space where people can go to feel not only uncomfortable, but challenged and supported and, you know, seen and heard and feel like there's an ongoing invitation to share stories and share narratives because grief narratives, just like lives, they shift over time. Your grief story and your experience with grief today is not going to be the same as it is even tomorrow or years from now, but you're still going to be living with that loss. And it's really important for people to understand that, you know, grief and loss is not a thing. It's not, it's not a pathology and there's no vaccine for it. It's something that lives with you and it's very natural and it's not okay if you don't have a place to share it, a welcome ongoing invitation. And so Modern Loss originated as an online magazine that published a, you know, very narrowly focused resources, personal essays, resource pieces, advice columns, um, practical guides around the long arc of grief and loss. And what we wanna show is that grief is all, it touches everything. Um, you know how humans in New York, I'm sure you've heard of that, you know, that feed um, on Instagram. It's just a beautiful project, you know. Uh, what is the common thread there? They're all humans and they're all in New York, right? But beyond that, 
you get all types of stories. You get all different permutations and combinations of characters and stories and experiences. You read stories about, you know, a Syrian refugee who is now a cobbler in Queens and a struggle that he has had financially. Or you read a story about, you know, um, I don't know, like an Orthodox Jew in Coney Island telling his story about love with his wife. And you feel common threads between you and this person there's because there's such a universality to these stories and what it does is it creates empathy it creates understanding and it creates the ability to maybe give somebody the benefit of the doubt who you ordinarily might not give a benefit of the doubt to and that is exactly what modern loss does is all of these stories on our in our community we've become a global movement we're all over the web and whatnot we have peer peer support groups um we want people to realize that you have to give everybody the benefit of the doubt that you never know what they're going through. It's always worth asking, as Dr. Spiegelman was just saying in his introduction, it's always worth asking, like, what has gone on, you know, in an appropriate way, way of course, uh, because chances are there's, there's, there's more than meets the eye. And also chances are that when you hear someone's story, not only will you be able to help them a little bit more, but they might be able to help you because it might turn out that maybe they've had something go on in their life that they've learned or that they're struggling with that connects with what you're struggling with. Um, and so that is, you know, essentially what Modern Loss is. Uh, when I started it eight years ago, I think it's safe to say that grief was something that like, you know, people would say, well, Rebecca, what are you working on right now? And I would say, well, I'm going to start a grief community. I'm going to start a publication that helps people through the long arc of grief and loss. And it's actually going to be amazing. It's going to be great. Uh, it's going to be funny because you still are alive and you deserve to feel like you can live richly. You deserve to feel like you can live with post-traumatic growth, with resilience. Um, and it's going to be moving. It's going to be you know, resonant. And I would say that nine out of 10 people said that's really nice. That sounds really weird. That sounds really morbid. Kind of like, what's wrong with you? Um, and I got a lot of side. It was very awkward. Uh, and my answer was, look, I feel very lonely. It's been years since my mom's death, but I still feel very lonely. I still feel like there are times where I need a community. Um, I might not need it every single minute of the day, but it's really nice to know that it's there. Uh, on say Mother's Day or maybe on my mom's birthday or maybe now that I'm pregnant and I'm about to have my first child and my grief is kind of shifting. I'm looking at you know, my loss of my mom as maybe now a new parent as opposed to just a daughter who's missing her mom. You know, this stuff shifts and you need ongoing support and conversations. Um, and I really wished in that period of time that um, I could put a microchip into everybody's brain, just so they could understand what it felt like for one minute to know what I was going through, what I was feeling, so that I didn't have to spill my guts every single time I was in conversation with someone, um, so that the record didn't have to come to a screeching halt every time I mentioned grief or death, you know, because I was also talking about other things like work that I was passionate about or politics or, you know, a skirt that I might want to buy. I didn't want to be just like solely defined by what had happened to me. I wanted to feel like I, that conversation could be as normalized 
in daily conversation as all the other things that we were talking about. And let's be honest, we talk about a lot of things these days in public discourse that we can't believe that we're talking about. Um, and so I feel like, unfortunately, and maybe fortunately in terms of empathy growing in the world, you know, we're in year three of a pandemic and we all have the microchip now, whether we have lost somebody to death loss in the pandemic or, you know, whatnot, we know what grief is. We all know what grief feels like. We all know what it feels like to suddenly have your life change from one day to the next, to suddenly not understand what tomorrow is gonna look like, you know, what next year is gonna look like, what our lives are gonna look like moving forward. I mean, just remember that day in March in 2020 when all of a sudden it got really real within like a period of one day, I think it was like March 10th or something, all of a sudden life changed and it still changed. And people keep talking about going back to normal, but I think you all know that there is no old normal. There's just new normal. And we're still trying to figure out what that is. Um, I wanna go to the layers of COVID grief uh, because you know a lot of this hour I want to be able to dedicate to legitimizing what you are going through. So many of you are caregivers. So many of you are in service to your community. And it is just a lot after a while. Everybody needs support. I'm just busting with my, with my PowerPoint here. So where are we at? There's so much grief due to COVID. Um, you know, we're nearly at 1 million deaths. I think we're going to hit it, what, in the next week or two we're from reported COVID cases alone. Okay. Not to mention what is called the bereavement multiplier, which suggests that for every COVID death, there are nine people directly affected by that loss, be it a caregiver, um, a, a, a dependent, a, a business partner, uh, a life partner, it could be anything, you never know. But it suggests that nine people are directly grieving every single COVID death. So if you go by just the reported books alone, nine million people in this country, just on the record, <laughs> there are a lot more than that. And also there are a lot of other people who have struggled, who have suffered, who have died over the last couple of years, and they have left behind an enormous amount of grief. We're in an incredible grief pandemic. We're at the tip of the iceberg um, here of something very serious. We have had loss of access to normal life, which obviously might include coping mechanisms and community engagement, respites and in-person rituals. We've lost the ability to have that wedding to attend that wedding, to go to the funeral, to hug our people, to provide comfort, to get comfort. We have lost that X factor and maybe we're going back to it in some form. Maybe some of you have never been able to give it up because of what you've had to do for a living. And that's hard as well. But a lot of us have lost a lot, at least during a certain period of time. And that is, you know, an enormous amount of grief, just right there. Um, we've had the loss and addition of roles. Uh, for example, nearly 2 million women have left the workforce in the United States over the course of the pandemic. That is a crazy number. 2 million women have felt like they have had to leave their jobs because they have had to become 
caregivers full time because their kids have been in virtual school or they've had babies and they haven't been able to have you know babysitting childcare and daycare it has all become seemingly impossible this isn't just women a lot of men have left the workforce too i mean we're in something called the great resignation right now there's been a lot of movement the foundation of our country like has really shifted it feels very very tenuous right now in many ways and you know we have i think a lot of you might have been had taken on a lot of other roles like maybe you're a physician maybe you're an icu nurse maybe you're a therapist and you're also now you know you were spent period of time becoming a full time you know stay-at-home teacher and a, you know, a janitor in your house and a chauffeur driving everybody around. You're trying to do it all at once. It's, it's too much, you know, it's too much without having a valve release. Um, on top of that, hasn't been the best time in the world. You know, um, we've been living through this constant thread of ongoing racial and social justice inequalities that are so evident around the world. There has been gun violence. There have been mass shootings. There, there was just one the other day in the news. And I noticed very loudly that it barely created a blip in the news cycle. And that made me so sad. There have been hate crimes which have reached the highest point in a decade during the pandemic. I mean, I'm a New Yorker and you know, I have seen stories of people getting pushed off subways and getting beaten in vest vestibules just, just because of what they look like. I mean, it's it's awful. Um, there have been resurfaced grief from older losses, right? I mean, well, just to go back to you know what what I was talking about now, you know, um, I want to touch upon you know obviously this is Connecticut Children's, you know, uh, in the introduction there was a mention of Ukraine, you know, it, it's nearly too much to bear, you know, on top of everything that we're absorbing, now we're also absorbing the abject photos we are witnessing in real time. The, the massacre of people, the massacre of children in Ukraine. And it does feel like nearly too much to bear. We're dealing with resurfaced grief from older losses. Maybe we didn't lose somebody in COVID-19, but maybe our mom died several years ago and that's coming to light, something complicated. Or maybe we had a miscarriage um, a while back and all of a sudden we're struggling seeing all these pictures of these kids in Ukraine and these babies who are suffering. And, you know, we've had feelings of languishing and especially, especially in some of the roles in which you are of compassion fatigue. We are trying to support a lot of people right now. And what's really important is to remember that one of those people, I mean, sorry to get it, got Brene Brown on you, but one of those people has to be you. It just has to be. Um, trying to just move this over so that I can see. Sorry, I did not. Hey, I signed up to be a writer and, and a community engager. I did not sign up to be a PowerPoint pro. So <laughs> forgive me there. So, you know, just talking about the layers of COVID era grief. This is an example of something that someone wrote for our website. She is an emergency physician in Colorado. I'm an urgent care doctor. A year in, into the pandemic, I'm running on empty. And she talks about how grief for her is an artichoke with endless layers. And she keeps figuring out what the layers are every day. She's like, every day is a surprise by how hard all of this is. And she's trying to figure out where to put it because she doesn't really have anywhere to put it. Another example, the intense isolation that so many of us has been dealing with 
as a result of quarantine, as a result of maybe a lot of people aren't in quarantine, but maybe some of us are because we have immunocompromised people in our family, or maybe we are, or maybe we have children who are still unvaccinated and we want to be extra careful. Um, it's been really difficult to toe that line, especially in a country that is hell bent on opening up at all costs. Uh, this is an example of a woman who is a young widow. She was just, you know, maybe 32 when her husband died very suddenly a few years ago. And she wrote about what it felt like going through Mother's Day as a widow during COVID, how she had lost those coping mechanisms that she had built up, which was like brunch with the girlfriend who got it, you know, a walk to something, you know, being able to maybe drop her kids with her mom, but she couldn't drop her kids with her mom because she was so scared of, of, of maybe her mom mother getting sick from her kids. I mean, it has just reached so many people in so many ways that we can't even understand because they're endless. Um, and so also our productivity has been affected. You know, a lot of you are working in caregiving. Grief brain and overdrive brain is real. Have you had concentration issues? Have you had memory issues? Um, I mean, I, I have. I tried to open up my apartment in the in New York the other day with my laundry card. Um, and it's not a key. It's like, I literally use a metal key and I tried to open it for probably 30 seconds with my laundry card. Um, I'm not proud of that, but that's where my brain is sometimes because I feel like it's like this little pad of butter that is being just trying to be forced to stretch over an entire baguette. And there's only so much that it can handle. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it maybe you're feeling somewhat useless at work um, from not just your own grief, but the grief you've been absorbing from others. Your productivity hours may have shifted. You might feel like you're trying to force, you know, what you can do and when. All of this is very real. And so a lot of this is really just meant to legitimize that what you have all been going through is incredibly real and deserves reflection and acknowledgement. So why is talking about grief out loud important? Okay. Um, I'm a big proponent in it, of it, but I have many friends who are physicians, who are caregivers in the in the medical community, in the the you know the therapy the therapeutic community, and they still struggle with finding a space for their own grief to talk about because they feel like they're constantly supporting others. So I think that all of you know that talking about grief out loud is important, but maybe you're not doing it yourself, and I want to encourage you to do so. Um, you know, we're trying to emerge from the first global pandemic since 1918. I just went over that nearly 1 million Americans have died. We're at the tip of an iceberg of a grief pandemic that is going to surely outlast the viral pandemic. And this is the time to give more space to grief, more time for grieving, not less. This is a very important time to figure out how to forge your communities of support and how to open yourself up and reach out to and pull people in for connection around this topic. Um, you know, the news lines have been, you've probably heard about prolonged grief disorder, which has been in the news. It's the newest classification in the DSM-5. Uh, it basically, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are it's a very uh, incendiary topic. It is suggesting that after one year, if you are still um, really struggling with your grief in some specific ways, if you are like really not uh, struggling with finding joy, finding meaning, um, doing certain things, uh, being able to work, that maybe it's a pathology. 
and you need to get specific help. Um, a lot of people are upset about this classification. They feel like prolonged grief disorder, which is, has been known as complicated grief um, in the past, is really just kind of like pathologizing something that is a really natural human experience. Many people who have lost children, for example, main people who have lost children in a violent way, for example, are very upset with this classification because they feel like grief doesn't ever end, that they will never be fully okay, that maybe they are finding moments of meaning, but how can one year be a marker point for grief? Um, indeed, 12 to 15% of people dealing with a significant loss are going to need serious help. You know, they might have extreme depression, you know, they might have PTSD, anxiety and whatnot. But most people, the sheer overwhelming majority of people who grieve are going to find solace in diverse modalities that are designed to support them. Social support, peer-to-peer -peer support groups, feeling acknowledged, feeling like what they're going through is normal. Like it's not thank you next, it's been a year, but rather I know it's been five years. I know it feels like you're taking two steps forward and a thousand steps back. It's normal, I'm with you in this. I'm willing to sit with you in this conversation and see you and make you feel acknowledged. Because the truth is, is that we're not meant to grieve alone. This is a very singular country. This is a country that is like, you know, built on like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think that that also extends to suggesting that you should pull yourself up by your emotional bootstraps and figure it out for yourself. But nobody can do grief alone. We're meant to grieve in community, even though our grief is of course very individual and no matter what it is a lonely thing but we're meant to share this with others because it's a human experience and to human is, you know, to be human is obviously to be in relation with others. We're not meant to do this alone. And so that's why I'm a big believer in storytelling, right? Um, I just talked about acknowledgement as being a cornerstone of healing. Uh, Modern Loss have thousands of members all over the world. And what we have learned is that storytelling is a change agent that it can make someone feel acknowledged. It is very hard to heal without feeling acknowledged. Think about a time when maybe you worked really hard on a project at work and you delivered it to your supervisor and they just said, okay, thanks. Or they didn't say anything or they didn't allude to how much time you spent on it. And maybe you worked into the hours and gave up a weekend. How does that make you feel? Crappy, right? It makes you feel unacknowledged. It makes you kind of upset. Maybe it makes you resent them. Maybe it makes you feel like you, you can't say anything else to them because they just don't get it. I mean, just now apply that to the feelings of grief, of your own grief, or maybe the grief of others. When someone feels like they're not being acknowledged in what they're going through, in that their grief is maybe too old now, or maybe not good enough, or not doesn't compare to somebody else's grief. So it's not worth that acknowledgement and that respect and that time and care um, and that struggle. You know, what would that do to somebody? You know, I know how upset I get when I work really hard on a work project and don't feel acknowledged, but my grief, that's like a whole other level. So when we storytell, when we get to a point where we can share our stories in ways that are raw and vulnerable and real and candid and without fear, when we can fly our flag, then we have so many benefits, right? 
we can expose ourselves to points of view that we might not ordinarily be exposed to in our daily lives. Not just, you know, the people around us when we when we share stories, when we read stories online, when we read stories that people are willing to share in various media about the real underbelly of the long arc of their grief and loss. It can be incredibly powerful. Um, we can show and not tell examples of resilience, creativity, struggle. You know, so many of us, our visceral reaction to somebody who is grieving is it takes a year or it'll be okay, or you'll get through this. Okay, well, like, does it take a year? Um, how will I be okay? How will I get through this? How will I get through um, a death anniversary? How will I get through a major holiday, a Hallmark holiday? Don't tell me I'm gonna get through it. Show me, show me examples. That is the thing that I struggled with the most after my mom and my dad died, was people saying, it's gonna be okay. How? Show me how so that I can see some examples and then try them and then get inspired. And maybe some of them don't work, but maybe actually at least I have some ideas that I can try and I don't feel so lonely in my loss. And that is why storytelling is so important because if we don't share our stories, we're not doing anybody else any favors. We're not doing ourselves any favors. And we're certainly not doing the next person who's gonna go through it in our culture any favors. And we all know that the next person is gonna go through it. Storytelling can make us feel less alone, even in an inherently lonely experience. There's no way I'm going to sugarcoat it and say that grief, you know, it's gonna to be totally fine, that everything is gonna be okay if you just start creating community around it. Um, but some things can be okay. You know, not everything ever was okay, but some things can be okay when you're living with loss. Some things will be okay. And they'll be a lot more okay if you don't feel like you're so alone in it. Um, and of course, this is not final. It's just that I only had so much room on my slide, but you know, storytelling can really help us find common denominators with people with whom we might have not ordinarily found common denominators. A lot of you work with patients, a lot of you work with clients, a lot of you work, are just like paired with people who you are told like you're going to be working with this person and you might be feeling, ah, like I don't know how to reach them, you know, like I don't know if we have anything in common. When you are asking somebody those stories about themselves and you're encouraging them to share them and you feel like you can share maybe not with your patients or clients but with people in your lives then you really can find common de denominators you really can build meaningful relationships with nearly anybody and sorry to sound Pollyanna-ish but I feel like being able to do that in this society which is so divided which is so divisive is so important Grief is like the great leveler. It's like the one thing that affects us all. And so why wouldn't we use this as a way to pull each other in? So why is creating a space for grief narratives important? I already went into why there's no healing without acknowledgement. I think that now more than ever, uh, because of the isolation of COVID-19, because of the ongoing proof that this pandemic doesn't really seem to be going anywhere, that it is now part of the fabric of our day-to-day -day life, that grief is likely in many people to be suppressed or protracted or complicated because of the social and the professional and the personal demands that the pandemic has made of all of us. And so we need an ongoing invitation to share our evolving experiences. Um, 
I just have a few minutes left. I could talk about this stuff all day long. I just want to give like one little anecdote before we're going to do an exercise. So I'm just like mentally preparing you that we are going to be doing an exercise. Um, so get ready and it's no pressure. Okay. But just like mentally prepare yourself to use the chat functionality. Um, so uh, there was a, there two Congress, two Congress people a couple years ago, this was before the pandemic, Beto O'Rourke, who I'm sure everybody knows because like he's in the headlines everywhere and Will Hurd. So they were two congressmen from the state of Texas. Uh, Beto O'Rourke is a Democrat, Will Hurd is a Republican. And they were both trying to get to, I think a conference or the DC or something, you know, like the pandemic has also kind of fried my neurons too. So I can't remember the exact details and their flight was canceled and they were really polarized. They were really polarized in their lives. They didn't really agree on anything politically, but they also didn't really know each other. They just knew each other politically. They knew that like this guy stands for this, that guy stands for that. And there seems to be a whole lot of space between them. Well, their flight got canceled. They ended up they ended up having to rent um, a car and they drove like dozens of hours and they ended up streaming it on social media because what they found was they actually kind of liked each other. They actually had a lot in common. They actually like death metal. I mean, which is, yeah, great. Go for it. And so they ended up live streaming it to their constituents and everybody was kind of like watching their road trip of these two men who really did not understand each other at all in the beginning, even though they're both Texan. Um, and they got closer and they became friends. And at the end they said, you know what? I feel like I see this person a little better. I feel like I understand them a little better. And I feel like I'm willing to give this other person on the other side of the aisle, the benefit of the doubt. I think that's a really amazing anecdote. It really stayed with me because it's just an example of what is possible. And sometimes it really feels like coming together or coming closer together is not possible, but it really is. And there's an example of it. We just have to listen and we just have to be willing to share. Um, so here's the exercise, which is a practice in sharing because a lot of you are dealing with you know, children. You're trying to get children to share. You're trying to get the patients to share. You also need to share about what you've been going through. And this is a very simple exercise, which is very powerful. I do it all the time. I love it so much. It's called the six word memoir, okay? And what is it? It's a six word memoir. Uh, it's a very democratic way of storytelling. Um, and yes, please use the chat feature for this exercise. It's so easy. All you need to do is type six words into the chat so that every you get a chance with just six words to share a sliver of what has this pandemic been like for you? Or what has your grief experience been like for you? What has burnout felt like for you or languishing felt like for you or being overwhelmed you know, over the last couple of years felt like for you? What is your personal experience? The reason I love the six word memoir exercise is because it's so democratic. Like a three-year-old can come up with a six word memoir a 93-year-old can come up with a six-word memoir. I do it all the time. I think it's really great when it comes to difficult topics because, you know, it doesn't put too much pressure on you. It just puts enough to let you share six words. It can be in a sentence format. It can be six words that aren't even associated with each other. But I, this is where I'm going to get a little strict here. I want you to go for it, okay? This is a space that is safe. No one's publishing this in the New York Times. Um, I'm gonna um, give a couple examples here on the slide. I want you to think through this. Uh, there's always a backstory. 
here are a few from some of the modern mosques community. Uh, she never got to see Paris. And now I'm an only child. Never met you, but love you. Burned out so quickly. What happened? That's from a surgeon. Now my body is always tense. That's from a trauma therapist who has been working from her bedroom with three kids. So I really encourage, I wanna give a few minutes before we'll move to Q&A, but please share your story here. Everybody has a backstory and it's worth finding out. Hmm. I'm going to read this out loud. I still try talking to her. Who's that man behind the mask? Miss my family, hugging, shaking hands. I am able to let go. Always on here for everyone. And then I'll use the period as the last <clears throat> word. Why is it all so complicated? Missed in-person grand rounds. Sadness, loss, loss of income. Made my face my greatest fear. Mm. Wow. Please keep going. My daughter didn't get to graduate. My mind won't let me rest. I'm gonna give this another minute of me reading and then we're gonna go to questions, but this chat is still open and I want you to keep filling it please because I want everybody to read this. The future is bright for us. <laughs> discovered Zoom. Okay, let's like, we're gonna do that in triplicate. So it's six words, discovered Zoom, discovered Zoom, discovered Zoom, mostly because we're always on Zoom. So it deserves being repeated three times. Did not get to say goodbye. My dad's dying. I'm not there. I believe that this is the time when um, we're gonna move to Q&A and from what I understand, I'm gonna stop the share. Um, uh, this is um, you know, where you can find Modern Loss. I'm gonna stop the share here so that we can go to just not a slideshow. Um, but if anybody, uh, I believe at Connecticut Children's wants to move to q and I'm here for that. I'm invulnerable until I'm not tired of always focusing on pandemic, but please keep reading this. Thank you, uh, Rebecca. That, that's uh, very powerful. I think everyone is uh, still thinking in six words, and, and that's for sure. And thank you for sharing your own personal story, you know, very moving, very tough. And, and it sounds like, you know, this whole process has been part of your healing, which is really very, very powerful. So for people, uh, please now use the Q&A uh, uh, section for, for questions. And um, I'll, I'll begin with, uh, you know, we obviously, it, it, you know, children are quite accustomed to storytelling. And uh, so for, how would you approach, how would you approach children in the, in the, in, in the process of grieving and, and how, do, how do their own storytelling help 
it helps them heal? That, that's a question that I, I came up for me. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an excellent question. Um, I'll preface this by saying that I'm not I'm not a pediatric therapist, nor am I a therapist. However, I have been very lucky to work with some incredible family grief organizations around the country. Um, one of my favorite ones is the Dougie Center for Families and Children. It's a national center for grieving families and children based in Portland, Oregon. They're phenomenal. I've learned so much from them and so much from modern loss community members who do have children who are grieving. Um, and I would say that what I have learned first and foremost is to always meet someone where they are, is that children also need an outlet in which to, through which to channel their grief. And that if we are not being good grief role models for them, if we are trying to hide all of our feelings, trying to pretend like we're not going through something, then it's very hard to show them that they can show their feelings and that they can go through something. Um, and if you're dealing with a child who is not your child, maybe you're working with that child, you know, meeting them at the level at which they are, at their age level, everybody is capable of talking about grief. It doesn't matter if they're three, it doesn't matter if they're 300, which would be a miracle, unless like you're Yoda. Um, every single person is capable of talking about some major change in their life that is very notable for them and very profound. And that's one of the reasons that I really do love talking about six word, doing six word memoirs because it's a really easy way to get the storytelling going. Also, by the way, I would say that um, doing books together can be really an amazing project because you never know what stories these kids are gonna wanna share and you can let them steer the narrative as you do books together. Thank you. There's a comment question is that uh, faith plays a large part in the healing. So I guess, I guess the question is, what is the role of religion, faith in your experience and how does that help us? Um, yeah, um, well, excellent question. I Modern Loss was really started as to fill a white space in this conversation on grief. So it's it's not a religious entity. Um, I think there are a lot of amazing circles that, you know, conversations that uh, are built upon uh, faith um, of any faith. And I'm an omnivore. I'm an equal opportunity, you know, um, puller of things that help me, uh, even though I am Jewish. I'm, 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 I'm absolutely um, Jewish and very connected to my Jewish identity. I happen to not be religious. Um, and so I would say that my faith I don't know that personally faith has really played a major role for me. Um, faith in, in any one entity out there that might be guiding us, uh, that is just me. I think that if it helps somebody else, that that's amazing. I think that anything that helps is amazing. But what I have learned is that it is very important to not impose one's faith on somebody else. What I've learned very well from our community is that when people, even people of deep faith, are faced with extreme adversity, their faith might be shaken and they might not respond so well to somebody saying they're in a better place or God needed another angel. Even somebody who is a devout something might have trouble hearing that in certain moments. And so it's very, very important to remember that what you believe might not be necessarily what somebody else believes. And even if they do believe it, it might not be what they believe in that moment. And so always to ask someone what they're feeling as opposed to assuring them of what you think, you know, 
should help. Um, but yes, like I, I do lean on certain rites and rituals. Like I, I think that Shiva, for example, is an incredible ritual. I, I love, I'm a Shiva girl, you know, I've been through sadly too with my parents. Um, it's an amazing way for community to come, to sit with you, to sit with you in your, in your discomfort. Um, but I also, you know, do feel like there are some things that didn't really resonate with me, um, like the the um, unveiling in Judaism, which is, um, you know, the year mark, around the year mark when you unveil um, the headstone. And for me, it was kind of the entry point of the second year, which shockingly for me, it was a surprise to me, it was harder than the first year after my mom died. Um, and I know Judaism doesn't say like, oh, it gets better. It's like better after one year, but you're supposed to move into a different place. Well, for me, I definitely did. And that different place was more struggle because I was dealing with the real permanence of her loss. Um, and so I think it's different for everyone. So uh, another, another common question is uh, we've, you know, humans are used to the face-to-face hands-on, um, close contact for in, at least in moments of grief. The pandemic uh, took a lot, uh, took away a lot of that, and, and there's no way you can do this on, 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 a, on a Zoom. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what you recommend. Um, it, things are opening up a little more, but I, I just feel that, you know, that hug, that, that uh, compassionate element of being in person is, is so different than anything you can do virtually like you know like we're doing now oh my gosh i totally agree look i have done like dozens and dozens and dozens of talks i have pivoted to virtual events for our online uh, modern loss community every single month we do virtual yoga for grief support we do mindfulness we do conversations about navigating grief through friendship we join us at any time like they're pretty amazing uh i used to do a lot of these in person, I used to do live storytelling events in person. That 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 you know theft of that ability has been incredibly hard, especially for people who were used to, you know, kind of hanging. That's what their sanity hung on for a time, knowing that they could go somewhere where they could have that X factor of in-person comfort, that hug, that look, knowing that that feeling of energy in a room. I mean, yeah, like we're still in a pandemic. I personally, I'm still very cautious. Um, you know, I live out in the world. I go to Broadway shows. I, I'm, I'm flying somewhere for my kids' spring break, but I, I still mask. My kids still mask in, in school. I'm, I'm, I'm cautious. I think that it's still out there. Um, but I relish the opportunity to hug friends. I relish the opportunity to have an in-person coffee now. I feel like it carries so much more gratitude than I was even aware that it did two years ago. And so, yeah, I mean, go hug your people. Don't hug all the people because not everybody's a hugger, but like, you know, uh, use that as a metaphor, you know, like go be with people, figure out ways that you can rebuild those in-person coping mechanisms, even if they still look a little different. Please, it is so, so important. Great, thank you. Ken, do you want to close up uh, with some comments? I think you're still on. I just want to want thank thank you, Rebecca, for sharing what you've done with all of us. And for all of us, this is a process that doesn't end. It's a continuing education and integration aspect of all of our lives. And we are grateful for people like yourselves and uh, others who are able to share and help in our community on an ongoing basis. So thank you.
Thank you so much for everybody. It's really been an honor to be here today. Thank you so much, Rebecca and, and Ken, for finding Rebecca and bringing her to us. This has been very, very important and incredibly useful. Uh, before I close, just a reminder that on uh, Friday, we have the second EI Symposium on April 8th from 8.45 to 12 p.m. We have some great speakers. Uh, there's no registration fee. It's a, it's a, a virtual event. This free is really, really important. Uh, so please join us. Uh, and then next week's Grand Rounds, April 12th, 12th uh, Psychology with Laurie Crosby, uh, uh, who's going to uh, give us a, a wonderful talk as well. Uh, so for all of you, uh, go, go hug somebody that you have next to you if they're a hugger. Uh, be safe, be, be well, and we will see you again on Friday and then Tuesday. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.